Welcome to the Checkered Flag Chat 2018 Liqui Molly Bathurst 12-hour preview. Please welcome your host, Lachlan the Ladies' Man Mansell. Glad to hear you're all so excited and I'm excited as well. In fact, I'm pumped because we are set for 53 cars and 175 drivers to do battle for 720 minutes around the holy grail of Australian motorsport, Mount Panorama Bathurst for the 2018 Liquimoli Bathurst 12 Hour. I'm Lachlan Mansell and it's great to have your company on this special Bathurst 12 Hour preview edition of Checkered Flag Chat. A lot of you are familiar with my Checkered Flag Chat blogs, but I decided because there's so much to talk about for the Bathurst 12 Hour that I would have an actual chat and do a podcast instead. And joining me to chat about the Bathurst 12 Hour is somebody who wears many hats, including racing driver, commentator, category manager, vehicle eligibility officer, driving standards observer, Team Medical Australia volunteer, generator of corny puns. Dave Stilwell, have I missed anything there? Uh, no. No, I think that fairly well encompasses my all-encompassing roles in motorsport. So, Bathurst 12-hour this weekend, what will your actual role be? Uh, So, my main role for the weekend will be as the medical coordinator uh, up in race control. So, if you've ever seen the shots... Uh, of the race control for supercars or for the Bathurst 12 hour that matter. Uh, I sit a couple of seats to the left of the race director assisting with the coordination of the medical response. So if there's an incident on track, coordinating the response of either um, on track or off track medical response, uh, coordinating with the New South Wales Ambulance Service and of course making sure there's a constant flow of information from our teams on the scene uh, to the race director and the clerk of course so they can make the correct determination about how the uh, sessions are run and the races are managed. It's not because we don't enjoy watching you work hard, but I really do hope that you have a quiet weekend at the Bathurst 12-hour. It is quite a difficult uh, pair of hats to wear because as a race car driver, you know quite a lot of the teams and the people out there on the circuit and you never want to see them come into harm. Unfortunately for some of our medical volunteers, the only time they get a bit of an excitement or a chance to do a hot lap around the track is if someone has a little bit bit of an unfortunate episode and happens to tag the wall and uh, we need to dispatch a medical car. So uh, it's a a constant battle in my head about uh, uh, whether I do want anything to happen or not. As I said, if we have a really, really quiet weekend, it normally means that everyone's been very well behaved. Hopefully, for your sake and everybody else's, it is a quiet weekend for you. Let's talk racing, though, because 2018... It is the 16th running of the Bathurst 12-hour, and that includes the races that were run in the early 1990s, the production car era, which went from 2007 through to 2010, and then the GT era, which has existed since 2011. No major changes to rules or formats for this year. It's the third year that the event's been run by Supercars Events. Once again on Sunday, all day, and also on Saturday afternoon, for the top 10 shootout, we're going to have live television from Channel 7 and the Radio Le Mans commentary team of John Heindorf. And this year, Johnny Palmer will be calling all of the action with Richard Crail in the box and also Chad Nalon in pit lane. So what are you most looking forward to, Dave, about the 2018 edition of the 12-hour? 
I think for me, it's probably the very strong manufacturer showing and particularly the heavy emphasis on the pro class, which of course has only been in effect for the last couple of races. The Bathurst 12-hour, when it did go to the GT3 format, was very much founded as a pro-am race. So that is uh, drivers that are seated or unseated or professional full-time racing drivers and more of the gentleman or the hobby racer. Uh, but now with the full pro rankings available, we've seen massive manufacturer interest. Uh, it is one of the blue riband GT3 events worldwide um, alongside the uh, the Spa 24-hour uh, and, of course, the Suzuka 8-hour or the 1,000K for GT300 and, of course, the recent uh, rise of the Intercontinental GT Challenge with the California 8-hour as well. So um, I think as a GT3 uh, observer, I'm very, very fascinated to see the pro cars and see just how seriously the manufacturers take it. But I think this year is the rise of the GT4 car. We've seen GT4 booming on the international market and really starting to get some traction locally, pardon the pun. Uh, particularly we've got uh, BMWs, Audis, and of course uh, we've got a slew of new GT4 machinery arriving on our shores in 2018. Um, And of course, finally, the debut of the second generation of the Mark car. Uh, This is the Mark Generation 2, previewed on speedcafe.com recently with wearing the uh, 2015 onwards Mustang bodywork, uh, updated engines, aerodynamics, uh, and allowed to run at a lower benchmark lap time. So I think uh, that really – I'm looking forward to the whole race in many, many classes. I'm looking forward to it as well, and in particular, just the whole notion of endurance racing, seeing how the different strategies and storylines unfold as the day progresses as – one of the pieces of magic, I think, that makes endurance racing so special. Good that you've touched on the manufacturers, though, Dave, because that's one of the points that I wanted to talk about. And before we get into discussing the main contenders for this year's race, the first point that I want to touch on is a couple of manufacturers, particularly in the outright GT3 class, that are conspicuous by their absence, and in particular... The defending race-winning Maranello Motorsport Ferrari won't be on the grid this year. In fact, there'll be no Ferraris in the field, no Aston Martins either. So while you've got healthy support from the likes of Mercedes and Audi in particular, along with Porsche, a couple of Bentleys and a few Lamborghinis, no Ferraris and uh, no Aston Martin teams this year. Why do you think that is? Well, if we consider where those cars have come from previously... Uh, in the terms of the Ferrari, we've had Mark Coffey and his team from Maranello Motorsport uh, putting together a really good effort. We've seen, of course, that was the car most synonymous with Alan Simonson, about after whom the qualifying trophy is named. Um, you've got, uh, and of course, we also had the Silverwater Racing Crew from Singapore come across. Uh, GT3 hasn't exactly been the focus for Ferrari. Um, of course, their new 488. Uh, GT3 car is also the subject of an Evo package for 2018, which is not currently eligible for the 2018 Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour. I'd say that without significant factory backing to get one of the overseas teams in, unless Smart Coffee could put together a deal to run the car, it's not something that that you'll see very often from Ferrari. We've seen limited Ferrari presence in other championships around the world as well. If you consider there's uh, very few of them turning up in the IMSA series uh, even for the Daytona 24-hour as well. Uh, when you consider Aston Martin, Aston Martin did have a couple of professional uh, or semi-professional customer teams racing in the event previously, uh, but we've seen the 
uh, engagement from Aston Martin drop off a little bit in the last couple of years. Consider also that they've just had the launch of their brand new GTE specification Vantage. So their GT3 homologated car is at the end of its life. Uh, it's been around for about six or seven years now. I speak, of course, of the beautiful sounding V12 Vantage. Um, unfortunately, because we run to year-old uh, balance of performance specifications at the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour, it's not the car that uh, you'd be seeing uh, either competitive outright um, or running, again, as almost a factory fresh car. I think come 2019 and possibly 2020, with the new generations of Aston Martins, uh, Ferraris with the Evo packages, you'll definitely see uh, perhaps a bit more renewed interest from those brands. You've touched on a point that I wanted to get your thoughts on, which is the fact that the Bathurst 12 hour does run to the BOP specs that are effectively 12 months old. Do you think that that's something that needs to change to maybe take away some of these restrictions that might be discouraging teams to enter? Well, effectively what it does, if we consider consider where the event is placed calendar-wise... Uh, it's positioned at the very start of February before any of the European racing seasons have gotten underway. It comes a week to two weeks after the Daytona 24-hour, which, of course, does run GT3 specification cars. It's in its GT Daytona category of the weather, uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Uh, but apart from that, and possibly you've got the Dubai 24-hour as well, which often runs its own BOP because it balances cars that are not yet homologated, it's not really the first event of a new season from a technical standpoint. You could consider it a grand finale or a schoolies weekend after the season has, has completed. So the cars will run in the same balance of performance specification that's been provided by the SRO and the FIA, where they've developed it over the years over or even through the year preceding to balance the different cars with rev limits and minimum race weights and restrictors for the engines and boost limits and... Uh, uh, and all sorts of aerodynamic criteria uh, to ensure that the cars are as closely balanced for the types of circuits that they need balancing for. Uh, whereas if you were to remove those restrictions, you would be going into, into the new year, into the race Bathurst 12-hour blue riband event without any sort of indication about whether the balance of performance specifications you've developed favour one manufacturer or not. So it does tend to restrict us from seeing perhaps the very latest and greatest GT3 machinery. But what it does ensure is that the machinery that does turn up is well-tested and is well-balanced through the course of that 2017 season for the 2018 event. And as we'll see through 2018, any GT3 cars that debuted through the course of the year will receive a balance of performance. And then when we come back to the event in 2019, you'll be able to see all of that fresh metal, all of those Evo packages on the M6 and the 488 GT3, uh, anyone else who turns up, we are hearing rumours that there will be a, a new McLaren based on the 720S uh, to replace the 650S. And, of course, uh, all the other homologations uh, or any changes to the homologation through the course of that year for the following year. What we've seen as well, Dave, with balance of performance is that while it might work pretty well across European circuits in particular over the course of the season, at Bathurst it doesn't necessarily always equate to that much equality in performance. And we've seen that, for example, cars like the Audi R8 in previous years over one lap, and in terms of lap times, they might be relatively similar to the other cars, but they make all of their speed across the top of the mountain, um, which means that they're slower in a straight line compared to some of the other cars. And that means in race trim, it can make it pretty challenging if... 
they can't pass across the top and then they're being held up over the top by cars that then pull away from them on the straights. I think the Audi example is a very, very good one, Lachlan. We have seen over the years that Audi has set some blistering lap times in qualifying. And as you say, their one lap pace has been excellent. Bathurst being the type of circuit that it is with very long straights up and down the hill. And of course, the chance to get caught behind traffic across the top. Uh, it's an experience I know well from my improved production days in a little two and a half litre E30 racing car in the big, uh, going up against some of the big banger improved production cars with their big V8s. Um, when you do make all your time over the top, if you get held up over the top, it's a massive, massive penalty because that car you got held up behind, uh, even if we think back a couple of years ago watching Chiosan in the uh, in the R35 GTR and the Bentley Continentals just storming away in a straight line versus some of the other cars up and down the hill. Um, even if we go back to the supercars race of 2013, Ludo Lacroix running the special Xbox edition Commodore, with Andy Prio and uh, Matthias Ekstrom on board, when they knew that the car wasn't going to be as quick across the top of the mountain because of the drivers, they just trimmed the car out for aero and wheel alignment to make sure it was as fast in sector one up the hill and sector three down the hill. So that comes back to a lot of the design philosophy behind the GT3 cars, uh, and that's what the GT3 balance performance formula tries to do, is it tries to bring cars which have very differing uh, aerodynamic concepts or powertrain concepts together, at the end of the day, unfortunately, there's always going to be some sort of compromise, and unfortunately, you can never get it quite 100% correct. Putting the drivers aside then, which cars do you think will be best suited to the mountain this year? Um, well, effectively, there's, there hasn't been a huge amount of change in the specification of the cars uh, since the 2017 event. Uh, as I mentioned before, there is an Evo package coming for the M6, but that will debut for the 2018 Australian GT season. It's not was not homologated during 2017. Sorry, it wasn't homologated for racing during 2017. The Bentley Continental, that's an interesting point to make, is that Bentley Team M Sport has already unveiled the second-generation Continental GT3 that they'll be using in the Blanc Pain Series, Pirelli World Challenge, and other assorted GT3 events around the world in 2018. But the Bathurst 12-hour is the swan song for that first-generation Continental GT3. I think that car will be very, very quick up and down the mountain. Bentley heavily invested in the event uh, from a marketing and a PR side. Uh, also, a huge range of merchandise will be available in the in the merchandise alley out the front of Pitt Strait. But I think that car will be very quick up and down the hill, uh, despite its very large uh, cross-sectional area at the front. Um, I think that BMW will certainly put a lot of effort in after, they, after their efforts faltered at the start of last year. Uh, where they had some of the quickest cars around the mountain, particularly with the local drivers on board. Um, and then looking a little bit further down the field, I reckon uh, you would say that Audi will have had to do something to try and squeeze more performance out of the car, or at least shift the performance envelope so they focus more on uh, speed in a straight line as opposed to across the top of the mountain. Dave Stilwell is very much the expert when it comes to GT cars. I know that he follows GT racing religiously not just here in Australia but all over the world as well which is why we've got him on this special Bathurst 12 hour preview edition of Checkered Flag Chat that completes the first segment we'll grab a quick break when we come back we'll have a closer look at some of the drivers that you'll be seeing race on the mountain this weekend this Checkered Flag Chat podcast is copyright Checkered Flag Media and is for personal use only. Any publication or rebroadcast of this program without the written permission from Checkered Flag Media is strictly prohibited. 
Hi, I'm Cameron Hill, and you're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview. You've downloaded the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. Lachlan Mansell, Dave Stilwell, analysing all of the pre-race form guide for you. Hopefully you're enjoying it if you're in your car driving up to the mountain. Let's have a look at the drivers who are competing in the 12-hour the combinations that will be lining up on the grid at 5.45 on Sunday morning. And some good names, not just in terms of Australian talent, but some very high-profile overseas drivers coming to try their hand at the mountain as well, Dave. Absolutely. As we mentioned before, huge amounts of manufacturer interest in this race. And as a result, differing levels of manufacturer support to their customer racing teams. So you've got someone like, as we've mentioned before, Bentley Team M Sport, six factory drivers across the two cars, both in the pro division. No locals in those cars. Contrast that to Audi, which runs a couple of cars through their uh, WRT, their Belgian team, which will run a uh, a number of uh, Audi-backed drivers. But also you've got the Audi Sport customer racing of uh, Valvoline J-Mac Pym, which is running some local drivers in the um, in the guise of Garth Tander uh, in one of the cars, but then also quite a number of Audi factory drivers snuck in there. And, of course, a recent announcement, the uh, previously entered Pro-Am Scott Taylor Motorsport uh, or uh, Mercedes-AMG car of uh, that Jamie Winkup was in along with Tristan Vautier and Kenny Habel, which was the Sun Energy One racing car. Those guys, of course, racing in the Daytona 24-hour this week uh, in the weekend preceding the event. Uh, they've decided uh, to get further AMG backing for that car with Raffaello Marcello uh, sneaking into that car to boost that car from being a pro-am to a pro-effort. So uh, we've got factory drivers from Porsche in the Manti Racing Entry, uh, some factory drivers from Porsche in the Craft Bamboo, uh, Craft Bamboo Racing GT3R Entry. And even then down in the pro-am and the pro-classes, for where there's more of the silver and bronze-rated drivers, a little bit more on driver classification later, of course, Lachlan. But we've got, you know, we've got a lot of local talent assisting in those cars. David Russell in the JBS Lamborghini Ryder Extenso, Scott McLaughlin in the 650S for YNA Autosport, uh, Johnny Reed from New Zealand in the International Motorsport R8 LMS, uh, Dylan O'Keefe and Daniel Gaunt alongside Ash Samadi in the R8 LMS for. Uh, Ash Samadi racing in Audi Team Customer Sport. So really, really good mix of uh, both what we call main game supercars driving talent alongside some Super 2 and some Carrera Cup talent. Uh, and then, of course, mixed up with the best of GT racing from all around the world, be it IMSA WeatherTech Series, uh, the World Endurance Championship uh, in GTE, uh, Blanc Pain Endurance Series. Uh, this race does bring out the best drivers from around the world because it is a box that they all want to tick. And just to clarify, so Class A, which is the class for the outright GT3 cars this year, is divided up into three subclasses. So you've got the Pro Class, which is for teams that are running either three or four seated drivers, and seated drivers are drivers with either a Platinum or a Gold FIA driver ranking. The Pro-Am class, they can run two-seated drivers. Uh, At least one driver has to be bronze-ranked for the FIA, And then the AM class, you're only allowed one seated driver. The other drivers in the car have to be non-seated, so either silver or bronze in the FIA 
driver rankings. Obviously, you would expect the outright winner to come from the pro class, but looking at the entry list, Dave, there's some pretty good pro-am combinations where if they get their strategy right, they could figure very highly in the outright results at the end of Sunday as well. Well, I think if you look at the Daimler Trucks Brisbane uh, Brisbane Hogs Hogsbreath Cafe Griffith Corp entry of the Mercedes AMG GT3, David Reynolds, reigning Bathurst 1000 winner, uh, John Martin, one of the top runners from the Australian GT Championship for the Walkinshaw GT3R. Uh, alongside him, Liam Talbot, who, of course, was has got a wealth of international GT racing experience in, from overseas, but, of course, also a front runner in the Australian GT Championship, alongside the car owner, uh, Mark Griffith from the Griffith Corporation. So with four drivers in that Pro-Am category, very easy to split the time between those cars. Look a little bit further ahead in the Pro-Am category, the objective racing McLaren 650S, Tony Walls. Again, pretty experienced guy in Australian GT racing. He's the amateur alongside him. Warren Luff, nah, never heard of him. He's never done much. Not. Timothy Slade, uh, that would be Slade Dog from Brad Jones Racing. And Jackson Evans, one of the front runners from the Porsche Carrera Cup. So uh, a lot of the gentlemen racers, if you will, are starting to stack the deck a bit with some of the talent which, of course, really, really helps getting the outright speed out of the car and, of course, tuning it to make sure it goes well throughout the entire day. But the pro class is also stacked with talent as well. You already touched on Garth Tander driving for the Audi Sport Customer Racing. Janet Pem Racing Team, he'll be driving with Kelvin Vanderlinder, who we saw put in some spectacular performances in the Australian GT Championship last year, and also Frederick Verviche coming out as well, another Audi factory driver. And then there's a couple of cars that have got all international drivers. So Robin Freens, who's had lots of success. He's a race winner in GP2, did some racing in Formula E as well. He'll be joined by Stuart Leonard and Dries Vantor in another one of the Audi entries. And also you've got Christopher Mees, Christopher Haaser and Marcus Winklehock. Now that's a very strong combination of international drivers in the second of the Janet Pem racing entries. Doesn't really sound like a customer racing entry anymore, does it, Lachlan? Not with names like that. They're drivers who've been brought out from overseas specifically with the express purpose of winning the motor race. And this, of course, gets back to one of the, I guess, one of the philosophical questions or um, one of the the debates that goes on about the GT3 category. We've seen the rise of GT4 as GT3 has become more and more expensive. It's become more and more manufacturer-focused. But questions are starting to be asked about GT3 as a formula. Should it be, as it was intended when it debuted in 2006, primarily focused on the amateur, the gentleman driver, the non-professional? Or is it a playground for the manufacturers? We're seeing massive investments from manufacturers, both in building and selling cars, because it is a good business model. Audi having produced hundreds of its previous generation R8 LMS car. Uh, Mercedes with quite a number through HWA of the GT, uh, AMG GT. Uh, And of course, BMW pumping out M6s uh, left, right and centre. And of course, Porsche. Porsche is the original customer racing uh, specialist pumping out hundreds upon hundreds of Carrera Cup cars. And, of course, uh, they've also got their GT4 car and, of course, their GTE car, the 911 RSR as well. The question is, should manufacturers really be playing in this field? And I think that's one of the things we're starting to see in in WeatherTech series. They're trying to push back against a lot of the manufacturer entries, whereas in the Australian GT Championship and in the Bathurst 12-hour, 
significant manufacturer efforts, whilst perhaps not being encouraged, um, are being accepted without a, a huge degree of uh, fuss or bother. So it, it is one of those things we'll need to watch out for year on year. And it does elevate costs as well. In terms of the driver rankings, so I already touched on the fact that we've got seated and unseated drivers depending on their FIA driver ranking, platinum, gold, silver and bronze. Uh, there was nothing in the sporting rigs that said where uh, aluminium ranked drivers fit into the uh, whether they're seated or unseated, which um, is a bit of a concern for me because my FIA driver ranking is aluminium because I'm a lightweight. And Dave, I think that we established that your FIA driver ranking is titanium because your A, because your business is 22 speed and titanium is element number 22 on the periodic table and B, because you're nerdy enough to know that fact. Yes, yes, Lachlan, I believe that's true. Although uh, one of our uh, good friends from uh, from RadioLeMond.com and Radio Sport um, RSL, of course, said uh, his driver ranking was lead, and unfortunately there were no championships available for drivers with an international FIAC licence and a lead driver <laughs> ranking. I've had co-drivers for events, I'm not going to name anybody on air, whose FIA driver ranking has been charcoal because that's the state that the clutch was in when they exited the car after their stint. Absolutely. I think overall, in previous years, the driver rankings have come under scrutiny because there have been complaints about drivers getting rankings that were not representative of their ability. But when you look at the driver rankings table for this year, I'd have to say they've done a pretty good job in coming up with fair driver rankings for most of the participants. What do you reckon? Well, the way that this, the, cat, the categorization of drivers works is you fill in a form, you send your €150 Euros to the FIA in France, and several weeks later you'll get an updated list come out and you'll see where you pop out. Uh, I'm in the fortunate position of being over 30 years old and never having been a professional race car driver or won any serious uh, single-seater or one-make or high-level championships, which automatically gives me an FIA bronze rating were, to, were I to apply for one. The situation we find a lot of our younger drivers in who may be in a similar situation, they have you know they might never have won a Formula Ford, Formula 3 or a Formula 4 championship. You know They haven't uh, uh, found success in Carrera Cup or Super 2 yet. But if they're under 30, they're automatically given a silver ranking as a starter, which can make it quite difficult to find uh, drives, not just in the Bathurst 12-hour, but things like the LMP, the uh, categories for uh, LMP3 cars in Europe, uh, LMP3 and LMP2 in the Asian Le Mans series market. Uh, those, ca- those classes that use the FIA driver ranking system, uh, it can be very, very difficult to ensure you get the right driver ranking, but also it becomes uh, puts a huge pressure on the teams when you want to try to get the best performance out of the car, is finding those, quote, sneaky silvers and sneaky bronzes where someone happens to have a certain ranking because they're a certain age or they've only done a certain number of events or they've it's been that long since they've had any major success, they're able to sneak them back in and get what's really the equivalent of a gold or a platinum-level driver, but because of their success rate, the FIA's rated them lower, it gets them in at a lower class level. And that's where the controversies can arise. For the Bathurst 12-hour, the FIA driver rankings only apply for Class A. The other classes, uh, the driver rankings are not a factor. So let's have a look at the other classes now. We've got Class B, which is for Porsche Cup cars. 
only uh, four entries in Class B this year. We've got the Groves, Stephen Grove and his son Brenton Grove, along with Ben Barker, teaming up in car number four for the Grove Group. We've got Danny Stutted, Sam Fillmore and Andrew Fawcett. They'll be driving the Ash Seawood Motorsport prepared number 21 car. We've got a Team Carrera Cup Asia entry, which will be driven by Paul Tresseder. The Australian Chris Vanderdrift from New Zealand and also Andrew Tang and Chen Yi Fan from the Carrera Cup Asia Series. Along with the uh, on-track motorsport car which tested at Wakefield Park last week. Gary Minnell, Keen Booker, Aaron Zerifos and Mark Kane, the production car racer, teaming up in that car in the final car in uh, Class B. The wall racing entry, Charles Putman, Charles Espinalorb and Joe Foster, three American drivers behind the wheel of that car. I think uh, in terms of Class B, uh, Dave, you'd have to say that probably the Grove Motorsport car is the favourite within that class. Well, they have previously found success in Class B uh, in the 911 GT3 Cup car. Now, these cars are fairly interesting in the sense that they're not that much slower uh, when driven at an outright pace by a pro driver than some of the GT3 cars. They are on a slightly smaller tyre they'll be running a a spec tyre across all the cars but being gt3 cup cars they haven't got abs they haven't got traction control Uh, they do have sequential gearboxes either paddle shift in the 991 type car or a stick shift in the 997 cup car and And also about this 12 hour they're allowed to retrofit paddle shift to the older 997 cars if they wish as well Mm. but but without traction control and ABS, it does present a pretty difficult task for the gentleman drivers when you compare them to, obviously, it's a massive cost difference between, say, a 991 cup car retailing for about three hundred to $350,000 versus a brand new 911 GT3R, which is somewhere in the vicinity to seven dollars to $800,000 as a package. Uh, but again, it's significant step up in technology and stability in those cars. So... Class B, yes, there's a small number of entrants, but they will be pushing quite hard. And as we've seen, uh, the GT3 Cup car is very, very versatile vehicle. We've seen it running in state-level sports car racing. We've got the GT3 Cup Challenge, which, of course, this year welcomes the 991 Cup car. This will be uh, an entertaining start to the Porsche Customer Racing uh, 2018 season. And by the way, I said that there were four cars in Class B. There are actually five, so... um... That uh, just proves that I can't count, which is why I'm generally found in commentary boxes at racetracks and not uh, down in the pits making myself more money as a race engineer. And it's also why we won't be sending you to timing to count the cars as they come past. Exactly right. So that's Class B. Class C, now this is an interesting class because this comes back to the topic that you raised before about the rise of the GT4 category in international motorsport and... Quite a healthy field in Class C this year with particularly the BMW, the brand new M4 GT4 entries making their presence felt. We've got one Porsche Cayman, a couple of KTM crossbows and a few Genetas as well. Some good drivers in the BMW M4 GT4s, particularly Aaron Seaton and Matt Brabham who will team up with Tony Longhurst in the Boatworks entry and also Cameron Hill who was a star in the Toyota 86 series last year getting the call up to drive alongside Dean Grant and Xavier West in the Stephen Richards Motorsport run BMW M4 GT4 as well. And of course, don't forget the Beijing Motorsport 
uh, Kent Bajant, Neil Elport, Matt Spratton, Ash Blewett, M4, GT4 entry from uh, New Zealand as well. GT4 really experiencing a surge, as we mentioned before. GT3 costs getting uh, higher and higher and higher. When GT3 launched in 2006, the baseline of performance was that year's 2006 model year Carrera Cup car, a car that in the right hands on the right tyres at Bathurst would do somewhere in the vicinity of a 2 minute 12 uh, when driven by a professional, perhaps a 2 minute 11 when driven quite quickly. Uh, we consider that, contrast that now to the front-running GT3 cars at, at Mount Panorama uh, are capable of running high 201s in the hands of Shane Van Gisbergen, but obviously running 203s, 204s consistently. So the performance level for GT3 has stepped up dramatically. What that's done is that's attracted or pushed a lot of the entry-level amateurs who just want to buy a car and go racing relatively cost-effectively uh, towards the GT4 model, which, of course, debuted just a couple of years after GT3 and was modelled on effectively more one-make race cars. So it started off with the Nissan 350Z, uh, the Ford FR500C, which was successful in the uh, uh, in the IMSA, or what was then the Grand Am Continental Tire Series and Coney Challenge, uh, BMW M3 GT4, uh, of course, the Janetta, and, uh, and then we've also seen a lot of the the, the small, low-volume manufacturers turning up in GT4 as well, the KTM Crossbow, uh, the Sin R1. Uh, in the US, we've started to see you know the return of Panos. Uh, but, of course, we're seeing a lot of the high-end manufacturers getting into GT4 as well because they're seeing it's a place where they can develop their customers in the same way Porsche has their customer racing pyramid. Uh, they The manufacturers, someone like Audi, can start someone off in an, uh, an Audi club in a TT Cup racing car, move them into a TCR car, which is a topic we'll get to later on. Then they can move to the new GT4 spec Audi R8, which basically looks like an Audi R8 with a roll cage and a couple of carbon flicks on it uh, and some slicks. And then they can move to the full-fat Audi R8 GT3 car. Uh, consider Porsche. They go one step even further. They've got their uh, massive Porsche Club Motorsport around at club level. You step into the GT4 specification Cayman, of which there are two versions. Uh, we don't have any of the Manti Racing GT4 CSs here this weekend. Uh, you'll see a lot of them uh, racing at the uh, Daytona 24-hour uh, at the uh, uh, Continental Tire Series and, of course, in the Blancpain uh, GT4 Series across Europe. And then they step up to the uh, full GT3 uh, either the GT3 Cup car or the GT3R, and then they could go from there to the uh, GT3 RSR, the 911, the mid-engine car that runs the World Endurance Championship. So these have become very, very integral to a lot of manufacturers in terms of building their customer base and giving them a progression path, but also ensuring that they've got a product in all the different parts of the market. So Jeanette has been a master of that. BMW is getting on it. Uh, as we mentioned, Audi, uh, we I aren't seeing yet the uh, the new Mercedes AMG GT4, uh, but uh, word on the street is that we will be seeing one of those debuting through 2018 in the Australian GT Championship in the trophy class. And I did see some of them in action in the Dubai 24-hour the other weekend as well. So they are starting to filter into these endurance races. And you talk about young talent rising up through the ranks, and we do have some serious talent entered into the GT4 class. I've already mentioned... Aaron Seaton, Matt Brabham and Cameron Hill. Matt Spratt, who you mentioned, he is a Kiwi who went very well in the V8 Ute Racing Series last year and, in fact, had a race win in the Utes at Bathurst. Also in the KTMs, 
Tim Macro, good to see him back behind the wheel of a competitive car. And Caitlin Wood, who raced in the Blanc Pan series with the Ryder Engineering team last year, as her prize for being the best performing female driver in the Ryder Young Stars program in 2016. She'll be making her first Bathurst 12 hour start, so great to see her on the grid as well. Absolutely. That's probably, you met, You asked if I had any other misgivings. I think the fact that we call it gentleman racing or gentleman racer is kind of indicative of the fairly staggering gender imbalance when it comes to this level of motor racing. We do see a lot of uh, females and women getting engaged in karting, very high participation levels, and then the participation levels start to trickle off. And then particularly when you look at sports car racing, which is primarily targeted at amateurs, uh, you know, people who've uh, made their money in their business and have got some money to spend on uh, turning a uh, turning a lot of that money into noise and tire and tire squeal uh, on the weekends. Uh, the fact that we don't have much, if any, female representation uh, in both the GT Championship uh, across a number of categories in Australia, and particularly the Bathurst 12 Hour, our gold standard of GT3 event in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, I think it's disappointing we don't have uh, more f- female participation. Um, particularly given the fact we've got so many uh, burgeoning uh, female talent, talented female racers uh, just knocking on the door waiting to get in but just don't get the, the coverage or the attention or the funding they deserve. I agree with you on that. And, yes, you're right. It would also be good to see some successful women in terms of success off the track in business, um, spending some of that money on going motor racing as well. And you're right, we haven't seen much of that at all here in Australia. Let's get to the final class, the invitational class, Class I. And this is a class that's predominantly occupied by Mark cars, although there are a couple of the Daytona sports cars, team cars as well. The Daytona Coupe for Jamie Augustine, Dylan Thomas and Reese Howell. Also the Dodge Viper with Ben Schutz, Adam Macro and Michael Kane. That Daytona is wicked fast in a straight line. I'm talking over 300 k's an hour down Conrod Strait. It's actually faster than all of the GC3 cars. Obviously, in terms of lap times, it's nowhere near as quick because it doesn't have the aero and it can't carry the corner speed over the top. But on the straights, it will drive past just about everything else uh, in a straight line. I do have a bit of a rant when it comes to Class I, though. Now, because it's an invitational class, there is a benchmark lap time, and that benchmark lap time is 2 minutes 10, unless you're in one of the new generation Mark Mark II cars, in which case your benchmark time is 2 minutes and 6 seconds. I really think that rather than having two different sets of rules within the same class, it would have been much fairer to have split it up into two separate classes and had class I1 for cars doing 206s and class I2 for cars doing 210s. Although technically, Lachlan, if if we were using Roman numerals, that would be class I and class II. Well, point. Valid point. Or it would be, yeah, class II or class III, wouldn't mm, it? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I1, I2. But the point stands because unless the Mark II cars have problems, the other cars have got no chance of beating them on pace if they can go four seconds a lap quicker. Lachlan, I think you might be getting past the point that the invitational class is just that. It's purely invitational. It's from the promotion of the event it's really just there to allow people the opportunity to go racing if they wish to uh 
they've set those two lap times because previously the uh, the invitational uh, minimum benchmark time has come down year on year on year on year. Uh, obviously, there's been some discussion between the team at Racer Industries and Mark Cars that build the car uh, and the organisers, Supercars and their technical management, and they've determined that a 2.06 benchmark time is acceptable for those cars to run. Um, they make the determination about what cars are allowed into the eligible or allowed onto the eligible vehicles list in the invitational category. You would remember when the class, um, when the when the race switched to a GT3 racing format in 2010 or 2011, uh, it still maintained all of its production car classes. And then year on year, those production car classes have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk to the point where there are no longer any of the production cars from the reborn uh, Bathurst 12 hour from 2007 uh, there's none of those still entered in the invitational class we saw the uh, the GWS motorsport uh, run by Gary Manell and his team at at on track motorsport the 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 long-term BMW 335 continually modified and upgraded and and reborn uh, had its last event it no longer attends uh, effectively this is the mark class that also happens to have the team the, the cars from Daytona sports cars running. And if we have a look at those two cars, you've got the Daytona Coupe, which of course is a replica of the Shelby Daytona. Um, in speaking with some of the drivers, it's something that's got in the order of 650 to 700 horsepower from the Chevrolet V8 under the bonnet on something that's got the wheelbase and the track width of an MGB Roadster. So that's why it's probably quite quick in a straight line because it's got very small frontal area, but it's also very, very tricky to get around corners because you just can't get enough tyre or enough track width under it. And then you've got the Dodge Viper, uh, which is one of the early generation FIA GT3 cars that's been de-logbooked as a GT3. It's now effectively a production sports car uh, that would run at state level, and that means it's opened up to a few more of the freedoms. So Richard Bendell and the team at uh, Daytona Sports Cars have gone the, the full hog with some uh, changes to the gearbox, changes to the aerodynamic regulations, uh, and changes to the uh, electronics package in the car to try to bring it up to speed and make it nicer to drive. So partially a test bed, but also partially just a, a bunch of guys and girls going fun and just having fun at the, for, for a 12-hour race. If for them, it's the it's the culmination of a year's effort that started at uh, 5.45 uh, on the Sunday of the previous year's event uh, when they started figuring out what went wrong, what they could do better, and uh, spend the year testing and come back again. Yeah, and reliability will be the big question mark for the Daytona in particular because its finishing record in the Bathurst 12-hour has been less than exemplary, you would have to say, when you look at the history of race results recorded for that car. Plenty of talent in the Mark cars, though. Some very good young drivers, especially. You've got names like Aaron Cameron, who was a star in Formula Ford and the Toyota 86 Series and the Utes last year. Uh, Will Brown, who was uh, one of the front runners, certainly towards the end of the year in the Dunlop Super 2 Series. He's going to be in one of the Mark cars as well. Tyler Everingham, who raced in the Cavs Jayco Australian Formula 4 Championship last year. Nick Rowe, who won the Formula 4 Championship. You've Zane got... Goddard, who was in Formula yep. 4. Jordan Love, um... who was in GC3 Cup Challenge and Carrera Cup. Um, John Goodacre, another former frontrunner from GT3 Cup Challenge. And Pete Major, who was a race winner in the Australian GT Championship last year and also finished on the podium at Bathurst in one of the Toyota 86 Series races. So good depth of talent among the Mark cars, you would have to say. 
And I think what a lot of those younger uh, drivers see is that although admittedly the uh, the Mark cars uh, do run a paddle shift, they do run a Bosch Motorsport ABS and they run Motec with traction control, uh, in terms of the weight of the car, the size tyre that it's on and the approximate level of horsepower that it runs, it will offer an experience somewhat akin to what uh, driving a car of the future or a uh, generation uh, or next generation uh, V8 supercar would be around Bathurst. Uh, it does run the controlled Coyote um, 5 litre V8 in the first generation car and the new generation 5.2 litre motor, as uh, we've now seen in the GT4 specification Ford Mustang. Uh, so we're talking engines that produce somewhere in the vicinity of sort of 470 to 550 horsepower. Uh, they can run two 24-hour races back-to-back um, with nothing more than an oil change. Uh, but the cars are a little bit lighter than a car of the future supercar, uh, a little bit easier to drive with those driver aids, and a little bit more aerodynamics. So, um, again, we see, particularly with that Generation 2 car, getting that 206 benchmark time, you'll start to see performance. Again, it'll be a little bit different, probably a little bit down in sectors one and three, possibly a little bit higher up in sector two. And those cars are starting to proliferate into international endurance races, particularly in the Creventic series where you've got the SPX classes where a variety of cars that don't necessarily meet technical regulations can run. So I think that's the market that Ryan McLeod and the Racing Industries team are targeting with those cars. That, that would be a market, would it, Lachlan? Market, exactly, yes. <laughs> well played. I'm, as I said, generator of corny puns, Dave Stilwell. Joining myself, Lachlan Mansell, to preview the Bathurst 12-hour 2018 edition for you and just before we finish on the subject of cars and drivers in this year's event i want to ask dave about drivers who are not entered for this year's event who he'd like to see but before i get his opinion i've got a list of drivers that i'd like to see in the event and i'll start off by reminding everybody that checkered flag chat is produced by checkered flag media which is a pr agency which represents clients who pay our invoices so that we can go out and spend money on the technology required to produce podcasts like this one. So it would be remiss of me not to mention Tony Bates as a driver who I'd like to see on the grid. He actually has had two previous starts in the Bathurst 12-hour, but wasn't able to get a program for this year. Emily Duggan, probably another one you could add to that list of drivers that I'd like to see on the grid. I'm sure she'd love to be on the grid as well. Um, and also probably some of my younger clients who are working their way up through the ranks as well. So um, that's the start of the list. Over in Dubai, when I was at the 24-hour, there was an Italian driver by the name of Mirko Bortolotti who put in an absolutely spectacular performance in a Lamborghini, got pole position to start off with. The car had three punctures in the first hour of the race, and fell all the way back to, I think it was, 66th position. And with the skilled driving of Bortolotti and the rest of the team, they were able to fight their way back onto the outright podium. So he is everything that you think about when you think of Italian racing car drivers. Feisty, um, you know, aggressive, doesn't hold back, spectacular to watch. Would love to see him at the mountain. Uh, and the other one is Mark Webber. Now, if you cast your mind back, Dave, to I think about probably 2014, there was a big press release that came out saying Mark Webber 
would love to race in the Bathurst 12 hour and he's going to get a Porsche and he's going to team up with Eric Banner and let's make it happen. And the story just died and nobody's talked about it since. So I'm going to, via this podcast, ask the question, Mark Webber, where are you? Uh, well, two things. I think uh, you'd certainly say that after three punctures in the first hour, that Italian racing car driver would no longer have an inflated sense of ego. And secondly, regarding Mark Webber and Eric Banner, I believe that started off as a Twitter exchange. Uh, and then, But Mark Webber's been very public about the fact that after his 2016 WEC season, uh, he basically had drawn a, drawn a line in his full-time or even his competitive motor racing career. He's now an ambassador for Porsche, does a huge amount of work with their driver training and their motorsport and their uh, customer racing coaching. Uh, and, of course, does a does a lot of work as a pundit uh, on a number of the Formula One and the sports car broadcast. You saw him on a number of podium presentations with the Formula One World Championship last year. Um, he's been very clear that he doesn't want to go racing in something he considers less safe than a Formula One or, a, or an LMP1 prototype. And I would have to agree with him that although the, the Bathurst 12 hours has been relatively clean in terms of um, major injuries, uh, particularly the safety level in GT3 car compared to something like an LMP1 or a Formula 1 car. Um, the safety level's perhaps not quite as developed as those those top-of-the-line cars, and you're talking about a circuit that would in no way pass an FIA Class 1 rating in terms of runoff, um, speed of approaches, uh, blind corners. Uh, it is a very unique track and a very unique circumstance um, but I think uh, Mark Webber, if if there was an opportunity to do it and it was something that he wanted to do, he would have already made it happen by now. So getting back to the original question, any drivers who aren't on the entry list for the 12-hour who you would like to see participating in it? Well, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, Pro Drive Racing, sorry, Tickford Racing, uh, as it is now, of course, uh, the GT4 Mustang had a storming season in uh, 2017 in the IMSA series uh, in the US, had a, a dabble in the European market. I'm surprised with Tickford uh, being so heavily involved in the Mustang um, customization market in Australia that they didn't see fit to bring a car over for the event to dabble in a couple of events and then put some of their drivers into. You've got Chaz Mostert, who's been seconded to the uh, BMW Team Schnitzer in the uh, M6 GT3 in the outright but uh, there's no, uh, of course, Cameron Waters in one of the Stracker GT3s, but no Richie Stanaway and no Mark Winterbottom. Uh, no James Moffat, the new signing from, uh, from, from, uh, from Tickford. Um, you know, Dean Canto, one of their endurance drivers, is also in the race, of course. Um, I think it's um, bitterly disappointing that we don't have more GT4 cars represented and uh, some more of the top-of-the-line supercars talent. You know, we've got all of the 888 race engineering drivers, We've only got one of the uh, DJR team Penske drivers, Fabian Coulthard, possibly got a bit on his plate looking after some twins with Becky Lamb, but uh, only a smattering of uh, the drivers from up and down the, the main game supercars field, only 11 of 26 main game drivers uh, in the field. Yeah, I, I suppose all of the main ones are there, and it's good that you've got the driver who won the championship, the driver who came second in the championship, and both of the drivers who won the Bathurst 1000, but... Yeah, there are still, as you say, some pretty big names missing. No Fabian Coulthard, no Mark Winterbottom in the field. Um, you know, and some of the younger ones who've had drives in previous years, like Jack LeBrock. No Jack LeBrock. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no Gary Jacobson. Um, no uh, 
no James Golding, no Todd uh, Hazelwood, no Todd, no Todd Hazelwood. That one I find really, really um, interesting. But again, that probably comes back to the fact that there's no uh, Madiki Stone Motor Racing entry, um, which of course was associated with Matt Stone Racing, um, and uh, and previously ran a lot of the Aston Martins, both in GT3 and GT4 specification. So oh, I'm disappointed not to see any of the Medikis back, either with the uh, Aston Martin V12 Vantage or the uh, V8 Vantage GT4 car. Um, that could have been something we could have seen uh, a number of competitors in, both uh, professional and amateur. I tend to agree with you, and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see some more Australian talent getting the opportunity for next year. That pretty much wraps up our discussion as far as the drivers, the cars and the teams go for the Bathurst 12 hours. So I'll grab another break and when we return, we will talk strategy. You are listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12 hour podcast. The Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12 hour preview podcast is proudly produced by Checkered Flag Media, Australia's premier provider of motorsports commentary, media and communication services. Check us out on the web, Facebook and Instagram for more info. Hi, I'm Dylan Thomas. You're listening to Checkered Flag Chat, Bathurst 12-hour preview. You've downloaded the Checkered Flag Chat 2018 Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. You are listening to Lachlan Mansell and Dave Stilwell analysing all of the pre-race factors. And we've just told you a couple of very obvious things that if you didn't already know, what are you doing? Oh, by the way, Lachlan, the race does go for 12 hours. You know what the race record is for the Bathurst 12-hour day? No, Lachlan, but I'm fairly certain that you put it together on the run sheet to tell us later. It is 12 hours, 0 minutes and 5.9576 seconds set by Rod Salmon, Damien White and Tony Longhurst in 2009. And I've included that specifically because I know that there will be some people who will listen to this podcast later who will give me a reaction that will be very satisfying. I'm certain that, the, <laughs> that your naughty corner in the media centre will be already set up for you with your, uh, with your uh, pram and your rattles and your, uh, all your toys to keep you entertained while you're <laughs> stuck there. On a more serious note, let's chat strategy because um, one of the key things, I think, Dave, with the Bathurst 12-hour a couple of factors to take into consideration. One is the maximum and minimum driving times, and another one is the probability of safety cars. So in the sporting regulations for the event, there are very strict rules about the maximum permissible driving time. So no one driver is allowed to do more than three hours continuously in a car. For teams that have got three drivers... The maximum time per driver is 280 minutes, so four hours and 40 minutes. For teams that have got four drivers, no one driver is allowed to do more than 240 minutes, so four hours in total. So managing those driving times is going to be critical. The other one to take into account is the rest time. After you do a stint, you have to have a rest period of an hour, so you have to be out of the car for 60 minutes before you're allowed to get back into it. Yes, Lachlan, that's correct. That's under Section 3.10 driving time of the 2018 Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour sporting and technical regulations. 
In theory, you could actually end up with a situation where nobody's allowed to drive the car. Because if you've got a three-driver team, and each driver does, say, a 20-minute stint, then you'd have a situation where nobody has done an hour rest period, so therefore nobody's allowed to drive the car. Don't laugh, well, because it almost happened last year at the Meadecky Stone Motorsport Aston Martin team because the drivers were doing very short stints because there were exhaust fume issues. Yes, but also this is one of the, the points of the regulations is that there's uh, normally has to be one allocated team personnel member who's monitoring the what we call the LAN or the uh, the, the team to uh, race management email channel. And this is one of the things where you'll often see um, there'll be constant updating of uh, of flow charts or, or strategic boards uh, on the wall of some garages uh, or there'll be a, a countdown timer. So as soon as a, a, a car triggers uh, the pit entry beam and the driver's getting out of the car, they'll start a, they will start a stopwatch as opposed to stop a start, watch as uh, um, uh, Murray might have said originally, uh, to ensure that they keep track of when that driver is at then first permitted to get into the car. But, of course, this gets back into the strategic planning. Uh, the cars are limited uh, to approximately 27 to 28 laps on a, on a tank of fuel. That's set by their balance of performance in terms of their total fuel volume. Uh, the cars are limited to how quickly they can refuel by the restrictor in the delivery hose, uh, which, of course, those are all mandated uh, for different teams based on their fuel tank size to try to equalise the total uh, because, of course, the cars run different engines, you've got everything from a 4-litre flat 6 normally aspirated engine uh, in the Porsche GT3 right through to a 6-litre normally aspirated V12 if we had the Astons. We've got 3.9-litre turbo V8s in the Ferrari, 4-litre turbo V8 uh, in, the, um, in the Bentley Continental GT3, a 4.4-litre turbo V8 in the BMW, a 3.8-litre turbo V8 in the uh, McLaren, uh, 6.2 litre, Bash is a 6.3, uh, normally aspirated V8 in the Mercedes. So all of those engines use fuel at very different rates, which dictates different fuel tank capacities. And of course, from empty to full, uh, if you've got a tank that's much smaller because your car's more fuel efficient, you could in theory be having shorter fuel stops. So what they but do is when the fuel... of them. Correct. But they tend to make the, uh, the fuel tank size a little bit smaller. They tend to decrease... Uh, the aperture through which fuel can flow from the gravity-fed fuel rig into the car to try to equalise the pit stop times. So all of these calculations come back to the teams where because we're running on some of the harder compounds of the Pirelli racing tyre, teams will often double, triple, sometimes even quadruple stint their tyres, providing that they're still managing to produce a level of performance that the teams are happy with. Uh, all they'll do is they'll get the car in, leave the driver in the car, change over one of the quick change drink bottles, give the windscreen a clean, pull the uh, the, the leaves and, and marbling out of the radiator grills in the front and uh, just basically fill the tank full of either uh, 98 or 102 octane ELF racing fuel provided by Race Fuels, the official fuel supplier, uh, and then send the car on its way. The most important thing from a pit stop point of view is ensuring that you don't have more personnel than you're allowed across the prescribed line and then, of course, uh, making sure you don't speed in pit lane because all of the teams when they're making sure their, their pit stops are correct, they'll also have observers watching all the other teams to 
make a point to the race officials that, well, that team member was uh, working on the fueling and didn't have their balaclava on and that person was touching the car and they were adding to the performance of that pit stop and that's more than the person's allowed and that person was plugging a data cable in while, when they weren't allowed to. You wouldn't so be accusing teams of dobbing, would you, Dave? That would never happen in professional motorsport. Lachlan, I can tell you that there, uh, there have often been bulletins come out via the land specifically telling teams not to do dob in uh, conduct that they see uh, via the email channel, that it must be reported and observed by an official uh, for it to be an official complaint. So, um, there, again, it's an event that teams take very, very seriously and when something like a drive-through penalty or a stop-and-go penalty can massively ruin your day and put you a lap down very early on, and it can become quite difficult to get that back unless you happen to catch a safety car, um, there's a lot of manufacturers that want to try and stay on the lead lap and uh, stay in contention for that last uh, that last stint, those last 25 to 30 laps at the end of the day. Yeah, as we always say, winning the Bathurst 12-hour is all about buying yourself a ticket to the last hour. That's when the sprint race begins a couple of points that you touched on that i just want to clarify or expand on first things first you talked about double stinting or triple stinting tires and the reason that that's an advantage in the bathurst 12 hour is because unlike supercars you can't change tires and refuel the car simultaneously the fueling has to be done separately to any other work that takes place on the car so if you choose to do a tyre change, it makes them a longer pit stop than a stop where you're only refuelling the car. Other and, thing, of course, Lachlan, unlike supercars, where you can have four rattle guns and four personnel allocated to change all your tyres, the rules of international GT racing, and as in put in place for the Bathurst 12-hour, you're only permitted a very small number, i.e. one rattle gun, in order to uh, remove and replace the wheels, and you're only allowed a, a very small number of personnel to assist with those tyre changes. So unlike a supercar's tyre change where three and a half to five seconds to rattle all the wheels off, rattle them all back on again, stand to one side, it's an awfully long, longer period of time to get all four tyres changed if you need them. Exactly right. Coming back to the driver time topic and how you manage the driving times for each driver, particularly in the case of the Pro-Am teams or, or any teams, in fact, where you've got a driver who is slower than the others, often the big question is when do you put them in the car to try and get the least disadvantage from their stint? And there's a few different theories on this, but I would always say that the probability of safety cars is higher earlier on in the race when you've got more cars that can have incidents to cause safety cars. So it probably makes sense to try and get your AM driver's stint or time in the car out of the way relatively early on because if you can put them in during a phase of the race where there's lots of safety car interventions, obviously if they're trundling around and completing their time under safety car, it minimises their disadvantage compared to if they're racing up against pro drivers under green flag conditions. But also, Lachlan, you don't want to put them in very, very early when it's dark or when it's dawning because that can make a very big difference to the difference in lap time between those who are comfortable racing in the dark just on the view of their headlights because unlike somewhere like Daytona uh, or Le Mans where there's significant amounts of the track which are lit, uh, the Bathurst track in the dark is dark the whole way round. And not only that, but early in the race when you've got all of the cars in the race, that early 
cut and thrust of the mid-pack in particular as people are scrapping for track position that can probably catch out some of the less experienced and drivers as well. And I think one of the things to remember here, Dave, too, is that with the qualifying format, because it's based purely on the fastest lap time achieved by any driver in the qualifying sessions, the grid positions that we end up with after Saturday are not necessarily going to be an accurate representation of each car's overall pace. Because say you've got a combination where you've got one really good pro driver joined by a bunch of amateurs, that car could potentially qualify quite a long way up the grid. But as the race evolves, it's going to fall down the order because it's not going to be competitive against the cars that have got more pro drivers on board. But also, Lachlan, I believe the point you make about getting your AM driver time out of the way early is a very valid one because if you use that time for your pro driver and you get a number of safety cars, you could eliminate all that advantage. On the flip side, if you put your amateur driver in, say, in the first half of the race from, say, 6 o'clock in the morning through to before lunchtime, get there uh, two to three hours if they're in the uh, in a four-driver four race. Remember, of course, they don't have to do uh, one-third or one-quarter of the driving time. They just need to ensure that the other three drivers uh, don't exceed their, if it's in a four-car, uh, sorry, four-driver team, that the other three drivers don't exceed their maximum four hours availability. Or, of course, if they're in a uh, four-car, sorry, a three-driver team, uh, not exceeding any more than their four hours and 40-minute allocation. Um, so, if they get that time out of the way, it gives you also the chance to make up for it. Uh, if there's safety cars, you can catch back up. Uh, if you happen to go almost a lap down, but you get the driver out and get the pro driver in, and then there's a safety car later on, uh, you can either get yourself back uh, via some luck, or you can, as your uh, Italian stallion that you wish was in the race was able to do, just basically drive through the field and, and recover a lot of that lost time. Let's talk about safety cars. So the record for the most safety cars at the Bathurst 12-hour, 20 safety cars in 2015, a total of 73 laps under safety car. Let's seriously hope we don't get a race like that this year because when you get that number of safety cars, it upsets the flow and the rhythm of the race. And what it also means is you don't get any strategic variation because every time there's a safety car, everybody just keeps coming in and topping up with fuel and you don't really get any sort of indication of how cars are performing over a longer stint or variations in how they're looking after their tyres and so on, which is part of what makes the race interesting. Uh, Every Bathurst 12 hours had at least six safety cars, and the average is 10.9, so almost 11 per race, which is a lot. And uh, that's sort of a, a nice segue into the next topic that I want to raise, which is something that I saw in action over at the Dubai 24-hour the other weekend when I was over there, which is the Code 60 protocol. And for those not familiar with Code 60, it's an alternative to having a safety car neutralising the field if there's an incident that requires recovery intervention. And what it means is everybody slows down to 60 kilometres an hour. Now, it has a couple of benefits, I believe, over safety cars, both from a safety and a sporting point of view. From a safety perspective, the main benefit is that it's instant. Everybody has to slow down to 60 straight away, so you don't get the situation that you have with safety cars where sometimes you have people racing 
for almost a full lap to join onto the back of the queue. So that means because everybody slows down straight away, officials can get out onto the circuit immediately to attend to an incident if there's an incident they have to get to. And from a a sporting perspective, um, number one, it doesn't distort class battles. Sometimes, um, for example, if you're in the GT4 class and you're leading the class and the outright race leader has lapped everybody up to second in your class and a safety car comes out, then you end up almost a lap ahead of everybody else in your class. So you don't have that problem with Code 60. And also, because you can start and stop at Code 60 at any time, and it doesn't have to be at the start or the finish of a lap, um, you don't have to wait till the end of a lap before you can restart the race once an incident's been recovered. So... I think, you know, from what I saw at the Dubai 24-hour, it worked well, and it's something that our sanctioning bodies and series organisers and event promoters need to look more seriously at here in Australia. Well, Lachlan, the other thing you mentioned is you, while you not, don't have cars racing to catch the safety car when an incident is called, um, it allows uh, response vehicles and med- so medical response or recovery response to... Uh, get onto the circuit much quicker because you don't have to wait for the safety car to catch the whole field and get everyone under control first, which would allow a quicker on-track response, perhaps perhaps even rec- improving recovery times, getting you back to racing earlier. The second thing you have is, particularly in a race like Bathurst, where not only do you have cars racing to catch the safety car, once they've caught the safety car, they might come in, do a pit stop, uh, so they'll put a full tank of fuel in, they'll put a, a full set of tyres on, that might put them a minute to a minute and a half behind the safety car train. And then so you've got the field, and I'm putting this in parentheses, under control, and then you're trying to manage an incident or a a scene out on the circuit, and then you have cars coming back at very high speed trying to catch up to the train to make sure they don't lose out when the race goes green again. So there's a number of benefits to Code 60. A couple of issues with the implementation, though, for a circuit like Bathurst, where you often lack a lot of sight lines and visibility, uh, it becomes very critical on the timing infrastructure to ensure that you've got the correct deltas, so the uh, minimum sector times to cover those sectors in the uh, at the minimum, uh, sorry, the maximum 60 kilometres an hour, of course, minimum time, maximum speed. That's a discussion we could get into about the pit lane entry speeding from Newcastle 2017, so let's not talk about that anymore. Um, uh, speed equals uh, distance over time. Uh, but again, particularly at Bathurst where there's not a lot of runoff room, um, it is a circuit where uh, even cars moving at 60 kilometres an hour, when they don't have visibility to know what's around the next bend, uh, it can it becomes a very, very dangerous working environment. So somewhere like Phillip Island or uh, Sydney Motorsport Park uh, or even Queensland Raceway, Wakefield Park or Winton, where you'd have lots of good sight lines. Again, Dubai is a really good example. Formula One grade circuit, lots of wide runoff, lots of visibility between corners. Really excellent for instituting Code 60. Bathurst, concrete walls, only nine or ten metres of track width, lots of blind corners, lots of crests. Um, I I like the idea of Code 60. I'm just not sure it would be easy or indeed practical to implement at Bathurst, particularly managing risk in uh, in 2018. Mm. I, I see your point, and I've had some passionate debates on this subject with Richard Crail from the Bathurst 12-hour commentary team as well, and he raised the exact point. And 
one of the arguments that he put forward against Code 60 is the fact that in some situations where you have to recover a car from an awkward position, such as at Bathurst Think the Cutting or the Dipper or Forest Elbow, sections where it's really tight, then you actually want the field compressed because then the officials know that they've got pretty much a full lap to be able to work before the train comes around again. So I think that a compromise could be adopted. You keep the safety car and you make it that, yes, there are some situations where a safety car is suitable, but in other situations, for example, a car being bogged in the gravel trap at the Chase or at Murray's Corner or at Hell Corner, a Code 60 would be appropriate. The other thing that I would say is that if you do get an incident on top of the mountain at one of those corners that I mentioned, you call a Code 60 to immediately bring the field under control, then, once you've got the immediate danger removed, then you bring the safety car out, you bunch the field up so that the recovery can take place. And that also uh, does two things, Lachlan. Um, it cuts down on the possibility of uh, leaders or the safety car not being able to pick up the correct leader uh, or obviously having problems with uh, leaders pitting and then the timing not updating frequently enough and that information not, waking, not making its way to the safety car on which car to pick up. Um, and also you'd say that in the last season or two of the Formula One World Championship, they've worked on those uh, that escalation of intervention. So they've worked on uh, local yellow flag. Um, in a lot of other series around the world, they have a full course yellow, which is kind of like a safety car, but not really. And then the next escalation from that is Formula One has the, quote, virtual safety car, which is effectively a code 60, but it's a much higher speed than 60 kilometres an hour. Uh, that's for use when there's an issue being dealt with off the side of the track but not requiring the intervention of other vehicles and then of course as soon as you need to put a recovery vehicle out there you know a crane uh, or you need to get medical that's when they'll go to a safety car scenario so i think it's worth further discussion uh, but i definitely want to see a lot of risk analysis uh, and a lot of simulation used um, perhaps we could use some of the tools like iRacing or Project Cars uh, in a race to try to simulate what might or might not happen in the course of an endurance race. But again, no matter what the organisers do to try to manage safety, there'll always be team managers and performance management personnel in teams who are always looking to see, okay, so if we go, if we're at this point of the circuit in this part of the race and we get this type of intervention, what do we do? Because teams will always try to minimize the impact of that on their race strategy but also maximize the benefit that might give them versus their opponents exactly right yeah a hundred percent and i think every time you get a new rule like that it takes teams a bit of time just to get their head around what the best plan of attack is should that situation arise and then after it's been implemented for a while everybody ultimately ends up doing the same thing all right, well, that um, pretty much wraps up our strategy discussion. We are running short of time. I wanted to try and keep this below an hour because the drive from Sydney to Bathurst, which a lot of people will be doing for the 12-hour, is around about three hours. So I figured that if I kept this podcast to about an hour, people would have time to listen to this one, but also listen to Radio Le Mans' Midweek Motorsport program, which is an excellent podcast 
in which we highly recommend that you listen to as well. So I'll grab one final break well, here. Well, Lachlan, yeah. Lachlan, my drive from Melbourne is going to be eight to ten hours, so we've, we've still got another seven and a half, eight hours to go before we've got enough podcasts to suit those people. For those people who are looking for more listening material, why not download some of the other podcasts that you listen to, like Dinner with Races? Yes, absolutely. I highly recommend the Dinner with Races podcast. Uh, Season 3 recently released. A huge variety, predominantly American-focused, so IndyCar, SportsCar, some NASCAR, Speedway, uh, huge names, Tony Stewart, uh, Joseph Newgarden, the recent uh, IndyCar uh, series champion. Um, you've got long-time names from uh, uh, even some some guys from Top Gear USA uh, with Tanner Faust and Rutledge Wood. Um, season, but definitely the highlight for me, season one, the level five special. If you've ever wanted to learn about just how crazy uh, spending on amateur level motor racing can go, listen to the story about the $2 million D-Sports racer developed by level five in 2012. Highly recommended. Uh, credit to uh, Sean Heckman and Ryan Eversley and supported by Continental Tire and bringing that uh, three series, sorry, three seasons that podcast to your your free listening pleasure available on iTunes and all great podcasting sites. And Dinner with Races, you are most welcome for the free plug. Thanks to Dave Stilwell. In our final segment on this Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast, we'll look at the race facts and Dave and I will put in our fearless predictions for the 2018 edition of the Once Around the Clock Marathon. We'll be back with you very shortly. Got a question, comment, complaint or rant? Get it off your chest in an email to info at cfmedia.com.au. Hi guys, what's up? I'm Aaron Zerifos, and you're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview. Welcome back everybody. Just about to hit the Checkered Flag on this Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. Hope you have enjoyed the company of Dave Stilwell and Lachlan Mansell in bringing you an in-depth analysis of what you can expect from this year's Liquamoli Bathurst 12-hour. Let's have a look at some of the key race facts for the 12-hour. The largest ever field for the 12-hour was 55 cars in 1992. 53 cars on the entry list for this year's race, so we are pretty close. The distance record, 297 laps in 2016. The shortest distance, 202 laps in 2010. The qualifying record set by Shane Van Gisbergen in 2016 at a 201.2. Race lap record also set by the Giz at 201.5. Closest finish was that blockbuster that we saw between Craig Louds and Maximilian Book in 2014 where it was just a 0.4 of a second separation at the finish. Most cars on the lead lap, five in 2014 and 2015. The most different race leaders. Eight cars led the race in 2014 and 2016. John Bow, the most successful driver in the history of the Bathurst 12-hour with victories in 1995, which was actually the Eastern Creek 12-hour, 2010 and 2014. Nine different manufacturers have won the 12-hour. Toyota, Mazda, Mitsubishi, BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, Nissan and McLaren. And as I mentioned, a bit tongue-in-cheek before the race record for the Bathurst 12-hour. 12 hours, 0 minutes and 5.9576 seconds for Rod Salmon, Damien White and Tony Longhurst in 2009. Three support categories on the program for this year's 12-hour. Combined sedans, Radical Cup and Group S. I will have the best seat in the house 
for those support races, that being the commentary box. Make sure that you tune into those via the live stream on Saturday. And so that brings us finally to our fearless predictions and tips for the race, Dave. So we're starting with the outright class. Uh, who are you tipping as your top three finishers? Uh, I'm going to put a little bit of World War Two into it. I think in my top three, I'm not going to pick an outright, but I'm definitely tipping one of the Bentley team M Sport cars for a podium finish. Um, they've fought long and hard for it, big factory backing. Um, it's the swan song for that generation of Continental. I think you'll definitely see them pushing for a podium finish. Audi will be looking for redemption after early victories uh, with the previous generation R8. I don't know whether it'll come from the WRT or the JMEC PEM uh, cars, but I definitely think you'll see one of those cars up front. Um, and I definitely think uh, one of the factory-supported AMGs, uh, either one with Cameron Waters on board or Alvaro Parente, of course, ex-McLaren driver, uh, Maximilian Book, maybe he wants to go one step better, or perhaps even the... Uh, um, the Mercedes-AMG GT3 with Jamie Winkup on board. So I think it'll be a Mercedes, an Audi, or a Bentley. Um, so it'll either be uh, Germany or uh, or Britain on top of uh, on one of the three top steps of the outright podium. Uh, but I think definitely you'll see more than... You'll see a record-breaking number of cars finish on the lead lap. But I think you'll definitely see some big stacks, particularly from the pro cars when they start to take risks particularly in that last four to five hours of the race. One combination that we haven't talked about just before I put my predictions in is the lead YNA Autosport McLaren of Shane Van Gisbergen, and Craig Louds and Comel Edgar, the French factory McLaren driver who's joining the two supercar stars. One thing about the Giz, and we've seen it in the last couple of years, both at the 12-hour and in the supercars, is that he drives at one speed, which is 11 tenths, which means that he either wins the race spectacularly, like he did in 2016, or loses it spectacularly, like he did in 2017. So I think a lot of it depends on which version of SVG turns up as to how that car will go. But in terms of the driver lineup, it's strong. I expect it to be on the podium, but I don't expect it to win. I think that this year I've just got a feeling that it'll be an Audi that wins the race simply because of sheer weight of numbers. They've got so many cars, and a number of their cars are stacked out with seriously talented drivers. So, in particular, I'm liking the look of the Chris Mays, Christopher Haaser, Marcus Winklehock entry. I think that with those drivers, their experience and their accomplishments in international endurance racing, they will be very difficult to beat. Um, and for the other car that will finish on the podium, I'm going to go for the Porsche of Earl Bamber, two-time Le Mans 24-hour winner, Kevin Estra and Lawrence Vantor. So Well done. Well yeah, picked. That's, that's I think, my I think, we've, I think we've basically said that any of the cars in the Pro or the Pro-Am division can win the race. <laughs> Just about. Um, class winners. Uh, class B, I, I, you'd have to say that the Grove combination is probably the favourite for that class if they have a trouble-free run. Class C, the heart, obviously, um, given that he's a chequered flag media client, I'd like to see Cameron Hill do well. The challenge for him is that he's one pro driver joined by two AM drivers, which will make it a pretty tough task. I think the Aaron Seat and Matt Brabham and Tony Longhurst car will go well within that class. 
uh, an in-class eye because of the aforementioned rule where, where the Mark II cars get to go four seconds a lap quicker than everybody else in the class. I am liking the Jake Camilleri, Morgan Haber and Aaron Cameron car within that class. Uh, I, I have to agree with you on the Mark II Mark car. Uh, the Camilleri, Haber, Cameron, they've got a lot of experience in those Mark cars, and then they've just turned it all the way up to 11 on the drivetrain and the aero. I think when it comes to the GD4, I do favour the Seaton, Brabham, Longhurst car, although technically that's you've got a son and a, 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 a sorry a son and a grandson of a legend in uh, in Aaron Seaton. Uh, you've got a son and a grandson of a legend in Matt Brabham. But uh, Tony Longhurst is the uh, grizzled old warrior in that one. He's the legend himself. So uh, perhaps we need to, if that was a real young legends car, we need to stick uh, um, James or Alex or Will Davison in that car as well, I'd say. Then you definitely have three grandsons of legends. Either that or uh, the uh, the grandson of four-time uh, Australian gold star winning Bib Stillwell in one of those cars. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Actually, we should have talked about that when I talked about drivers who are not in the field that we'd like to see in the field. Yeah, Dave Stilwell, um, why is your name not on the entry list? Uh, I'm currently in a rebuilding phase of my motorsport career, Lachlan. Literally, I've got a car being put together by uh, the team at uh, Team Mitsubishi Rally Art PPE at the moment, which will hopefully be debuting at the production sports car races alongside the high-tech oils Bathurst 6-hour coming up at Easter. And as far as my motorsport career goes, myself and Dave were part of Team Radio Le Mans in 2016. So, in fact, this weekend you'll have Radio Le Mans, who will be the commentary team, but you'll also have all five members of Team Radio Le Mans in attendance because Dave, myself, Dylan Thomas, Emily Duggan and Brian Vanderwack will all be trackside at some stage over the weekend. Uh, again, the, the team from RLM won't know what hit them when we turn up. They certainly won't. And I think on that note, that pretty much wraps up our podcast. Thanks for your company, wherever you're tuning in right around the world. Look forward to seeing you all trackside at Mount Panorama for what promises to be another thrilling edition of the Liquimoli Bathurst 12-hour. On behalf of the generator of corny puns himself, Dave Stilwell, this is Lockie, a ladies' man of Ansel, signing off. See you at the mountain. Bye for now. Thanks for downloading the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. For more in-depth analysis of the Aussie motorsports scene, check out cfmedia.com.au.